you know, when someone has experienced something traumatic that had them feel powerless at that time, you know, how the therapy can help them reconnect to the power they have, you know, mm. inside of them. Uh, so when I say empowerment, I don't mean I'm the one giving them power, because that's also a disempowering position, but more how do we help the person reconnect to uh, the power within them, especially in the face of a situation that had them feel powerless and that uh, where someone more powerful uh, hurt them. Welcome to Third Culture Therapy, a podcast that looks at the unique ways our social identity and cultural heritage impact our mental and emotional well-being. I'm Leila Magrabi, writer, journalist, and host of the show. Hello, listeners. Today's conversation is with Rima, a U.S.-trained counseling psychologist from the United Arab Emirates, who shares her feelings of disintegration after returning to her birthplace of Dubai after 10 years away and finding it a dramatically changed city. Rima also talks about the ongoing developments within the mental health space in the UAE, what the common issues her clients come to her with, and how a holistic narrative approach to therapy can help people better understand and reclaim their life story. Before we get going, let me give her a proper introduction. Rima Benyabbasi is an Emirati counseling psychologist at the Psychiatry and Therapy Center in Dubai Healthcare City. Rima was born and raised in Dubai and lived in Boston, USA for 10 years before returning to her hometown in 2018. As well as her regular therapy practice, Rima is a prolific writer. She is a columnist at Sale magazine where she shares her thoughts on mental health. Her writing is very thoughtful and lends itself to poetry, which she also writes. Her English poems have been published in a few literary journals based in the US, UK and Hong Kong. Rima is also a consultant with Tekalum, an Arabic mental health app. Rima, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well and actually very excited to be part of this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited to be picking your brains today. Um, I want to get started from where it is that you are, actually, which is Dubai in the UAE. Um, yeah where you grew up and um, where you have now lived um, for a few years after your return. Dubai is the city that I know fairly well because I lived there for five years myself. Mm. Um, so there are some things I'm sure I'm going to relate to, but definitely many, many things that I don't know that I'm intrigued to learn from you. Um, you did leave for a stretch for 10 years from college onwards, and then you came back and you found, like so many people do, you found Dubai had dramatically changed. Something that you've written about in the, in the articles that you publish. And um, I read one in which you described the experience as being quite difficult and you called it raw and disintegrating. Um, mm. Can you explain what you meant by that and, and why that was the case? Yeah, yeah. So when I first uh, came back, like I noticed that literally I wouldn't know what kind of Rima I would be in a given day. So in that sense, it was um, disintegrating in that way. So I, I noticed that um, I did uh, feel quite depressed, actually, maybe for the first year and a half of being back. And it did impact, you know, my confidence. I had imposter syndrome, which is where you basically 
question your skill sets and what you have to offer and compare yourself to others and kind of feel, oh, I was only chosen and hired uh, for for a random reason versus for my actual uh, skills. And then I'll be found out soon, <laughs> hence the word imposter. Uh, so I was feeling that way for quite some time. And uh, it was raw in the sense that it just felt like too much. And um, there would be days where I would literally feel like everything was like a dream to me, like nothing felt real. And I felt, where is home? This is not home. I don't feel rooted anymore. And that added to a sense of uh, disintegration. Um, but over time, this did shift for me. But definitely that first year and a half of being back was definitely quite challenging. But it also gave me a lot of insights when working with people, dealing with difficult transitions, especially in a, in a very culturally diverse city like Dubai, where many people have moved, whether countries or schools or homes. Yeah, it's interesting how you describe this imposter syndrome. So you felt it as in when you were in the UAE back on your home turf. Um, for those, I mean, you can check out, of course, Rima's extensive CV online, but you, you did do your bachelor's in psychology and master's in counseling psychology, both from Northeastern University in, in Boston. And you have gained various certificates thereafter and experience. What was it about being home specifically that made you feel like an imposter? Yeah, good question. And, you know, it's kind of funny that you phrase it that way. It's like, you know, you have extensive CV, you have all these certifications. What reason do you have to doubt yourself? <laughs> you know, kind of thing, especially in my own turf, right? Yeah, um, yeah I guess, um, yeah, I guess like for me, like, yes, I was born and raised here. But then when I moved to the States, I literally just turned 18 mm. when I moved there. Like my birthday was in the same month. As when I moved. So I was 17, then I became 18 just a few weeks after. Right. Really right. Young. And 10 years I was there. So I basically became an adult uh, in the US. Mm. And, and sure, I visited my country once a year, maybe a couple of times I came once every two years, but I was still maintaining that contact. But then coming, visiting is very different than living, especially as an adult. Um, and my family had also moved homes uh, during mm. the time that I was studying. So when I came back, I came to the home that I saw as a vacation home almost, because that was the home I'd come to when I visit, versus the home I grew up with and left to the States, right? So I had to transition to that, to seeing this new home as, no, this is no longer a, a, um, a uh, vacation home. It's home home right now. It's a different neighborhood. Um, there are things that have changed. And on top of it, I'm learning to navigate the city as an adult, not as a child where I was more dependent on mm. family to take me around and go places. Right. So there was that part of it. Then the other part was, um, I guess, uh, I worked with a very different client demographic uh, back in the States. Right. So in the U.S., I worked with uh, people of mixed uh, low uh, socioeconomic status to maybe you could say low middle. That mm -hmm. would be the, the range. You know, I worked with refugees, with immigrants, asylum seekers, uh, domestic violence survivors, uh, and uh, people 
uh, who were veterans, uh, as well as other, other Americans, right, um, who have their own, their own problems. And then uh, when I moved here, right, uh, initially I worked in a clinic where majority of the clients were, you could say, upper class, or maybe they may have grown up less privileged or even poor, but then suddenly shifted up, right? <clears throat> so that was a very different uh, mindset I had to work with. Uh, and many of them had very, very high expectations of what therapy was supposed to be uh, that I felt I could not meet. And, uh, and since I was already feeling so long disintegrated, it did chip away at my confidence and I'm sure our clients must have picked up on that right? Uh, and didn't feel like I was that anchoring presence right mm. in the beginning. Uh, and then I moved to a different clinic where now my clients, so you could say a mix between uh, maybe you could say low middle to upper class. So it's a bit more mixed. Mm. And I noticed that people's expectations, while some do have very high expectations, I think I have also developed more confidence over time to know how to address them and see, and the, continuing my uh, mentorship relationship with uh, uh, one of my past clinical supervisors in the, in the States uh, has been immensely helpful in, in me developing my professional identity here in Dubai, but also in me um, uh, transitioning uh, better right. coming back. <clears throat> no, I understand. I want to address this uh, point you raised about expectations and um, the thoughts, maybe some of the misconceptions or pre preconceived ideas rather that that um, people come to uh, to therapy with. Uh, but first, can you describe what sort of therapy or counseling it is that you provide? Hmm. Yes. So I personally provide, uh, I guess, like many therapists, we tend to have an eclectic approach. Uh, very rarely do you meet a therapist who is a purist in one approach. And I would say even those who claim to be a purist, they still bring in aspects of their personality and their unique presence into their work. So nobody is actually 100% purist in the ther type of therapy they do. But me personally, I combine between uh, narrative therapy which is a type of therapy that is meant to be collaborative. Uh, so it's not about me being, oh, I'm the doctor, I know everything, and you're the patient, you know nothing. It's more about um, uh, co-creating, you know, a, a way people can retell their stories in ways that are empowering for themselves. It's not about sugarcoating, oil. Oh, here's a silver lining in your story. It's more about acknowledging the both end of your story and having a thicker uh, narrative that's not just defined by only the problem, or only limited uh, societal ideas, but the totality of you, everything you're in a relationship with, whether it's people that are precious to you, whether it's values that matter to you, whether it's hopes and dreams you have for yourself, uh, whether it's the strengths you have, the things that helped you uh, get through different problems in your in your life. So it's a more empowering collaborative approach to therapy. Uh, that's less about saying, oh, uh, uh, you are the problem, there's something wrong with you. It's more about, okay, what are the problems that are coming in the way of what you want in life and your values and things that are precious to you uh, in life? And what can we do about that? So that's, that's my main 
the narrative therapy anchors my core ethics. But on the side, I also combine other approaches depending on my clients' needs and people's different cultural backgrounds and personalities. So I do combine aspects of um, t- uh, trauma-responsive, mindfulness-based uh, uh, therapies, uh, a bit of the somatic approach, and both of which have a more mind-body connection. So mm. how our emotions get expressed in our body and how you know sometimes therapy can be too stuck in the head. Yes. Too much about over-intellectualizing, but we experience everything in our bodies mm-hmm. end of the day. And when we can engage that in the moment, like, okay, how is this showing up for you in your body right now? <clears throat> and having that curiosity versus judgment toward ourselves can help us see, oh, what else uh, might this be trying to tell us? What else might we discover that maybe we're not, we're not as able to see because we're so lost in the day-to-day grind? Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's very true what you say about we can get very lost and stuck in our heads and in the stories that we tell and we repeat, but also just the intellectualizing of it. And my experience when I've been to therapy has always been a case of my therapist trying to bring me back to my feelings and my body. (laughs) So whenever anything comes up, he's like, where do you feel, you know, where is it coming up? And it was tricky at the beginning, even though if I consider myself fairly open and aware, but I was, I was definitely stuck many times on that question. Like, uh, I can tell you what I think about this situation, but <laughs> now I have to really stop and wait and listen and hear. And you do come up with different answers or definitely different insights when you when you approach it that way. But it isn't something that we're practiced to do in our day-to-day lives. Um, what sort of expectations did your clients come to you with? You mentioned expectations earlier, and I'm intrigued to understand more about that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is technically common globally, right? Uh, but but maybe I imagine that when you work with people who are directly paying for the therapy versus in a nonprofit where that was most of where I worked in the States right, mm. in, in nonprofits. So people come in and not the ones paying. It's the federal government that is paying. You know, it's their uh, Medicare uh, or mass health insurance that would be paying. Whereas here, most people, they're paying out of pocket or they may have insurance, uh, but they might pay a certain amount or some they don't, depending how good you are insurances, I guess, if you're lucky. Uh, but, you know, they, they still come in with the expectation, right, that uh, the therapy is supposed to be a very quick fix, that maybe within one to maybe a couple, three, four sessions, they'll be immediately better and all their childhood trauma from decades ago will be gone, right, kind of thing. When that's not possible when you're talking to a stranger for just, you know, one hour, two, three, four hours, <laughs> you know, once a week. Um, but also, even those who don't believe it's a quick fix, they may still come with the expectation that at some point in the therapy, they will have a major epiphany, when most of the time, that's not what therapy is about. It's more about these slow, tiny blocks we're building in each session then eventually pile up. And as someone who's been to a therapist herself uh, during my time in the States, and I do recommend every single therapist sees their own therapist. Uh, Otherwise, you might be potentially doing more harm to the people you're working with for not having that experience yourself. You said uh, you recommend every therapist does. And I was going to jump in and say, isn't that 
actually yeah. a requirement. Am I right? Actually, it depends. It depends on the training. Yeah. So in some schools, they do require you when you're a student even mm-hmm. that, that you see therapy. Uh, others, they don't require it, but they recommend it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can at least speak for the States. I don't know how it is in other countries. But in the U.S., even if a school does not require therapy, you're still required to do what's called clinical supervision. So what that means is you basically meet with a, with a therapist who's more advanced than you and they're licensed and uh, you meet with them at least once a week, discuss uh, the people you're seeing and how what's the impact on you, a bit about your personal life and how it's impacting your work. Uh, and that's required uh, in, in licensing to make sure you know that you don't cause harm. Now, obviously, with a supervisor, you should not be sharing identifying information because you need to protect your client's privacy but only enough that, that, that they would need to know, okay, what's your impact on your clients, how it's impacting you, uh, just to make sure that you're not potentially doing any harm, right, as, as a result. And uh, I would personally recommend that even advanced therapists continue seeing their clinical supervisor. Uh, you know, I personally see mine uh, uh, who is based in the U.S., so they're not based here, because I find doing so here can be a bit tricky when it comes to confidentiality because we're mm. a small country and almost everybody knows each other so yeah. i find it to be much safer to consult with someone based abroad than mm-hmm. someone uh, based here and do you find any disconnect or issues of um translating what is what your context and your issues for lack of a better word are to someone who is so far away and so far removed from your daily life or does it not matter? Yeah, in this case, I'm lucky because um, both uh, mentors I have had, you know, or you can say clinical supervisors, but, you know, I call them mentors <laughs> for simplicity's yeah. sake. So both the mentors I have are also narrative therapists. Mm-hmm. And what I like about them is, you know, something my past mentor, before he passed away, uh, something he told me is that every interaction, every person you see, is a cultural experience, is a cultural encounter, mm. right? So what he meant by that is no matter who you're seeing, even if they share the exact same culture as you, you're still dealing with that person's individual culture and context, and you still mm. need to approach that person with openness and curiosity about mm. what is meaningful for them in their life versus imposing your own meaning on them. Right, yeah. So in that sense, it doesn't actually matter yeah. because if you're operating with this system un- under underlaying your interaction, then then whatever it is that you're coming with, the practitioner on the other side yeah. is equipped to to receive it and, yes. and and work with you on it, regardless of whether they directly have experience or, or firsthand understanding of it. Right. I do want to pinpoint though that it is understandable, you know, when it comes to a therapist-client relationship. That it is very understandable if clients are seeking out a therapist who does share the culture background, because sometimes, no matter how curious you can be, sometimes people want to feel that oh, you just get it, and they don't yeah. have to explain yourself those mm-hmm. tiny nuances to you. They don't have to educate you or school you on their culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I tell clients who come from a different culture than me is that um, 
you know, I would be asking about their personal experience with their culture or their personal relationship with their culture. But when it comes to the culture itself, that's my job to do my homework and research and not their job right. to be the ones, you know, schooling me. Because it's extra emotional mm. labor for them that they did not sign up for in coming to see me for therapy. Yes, 100%. And I'm so glad that you said that and that you clarified that position because I've wondered in a way on on who, you know, whose responsibility is that? And I think you make a really good point about the emotional labor and that if I am going to someone, I don't want to be also bringing in a history lesson and an anthropological lesson into into the session so that I can add the context Um so it, it's good to know that, yes, the onus there should be on the on the practitioner, the therapist to do their homework on that front. Um, just to go back a, a little bit in time to your sort of Dubai, US and then Dubai experience. And you you did mention, obviously, the the issues that you felt with being feeling a little bit perhaps out of your depth when you'd come mm. back and join the employment fold in Dubai but also you were talking about uh, life as you had grown up t- to know it really changing and shifting under you and that that experience in and of itself was very unsettling and perhaps you can sort of describe a little bit what your childhood in Dubai was like and the versus your then adulthood, your professional adulthood in Dubai Mm. and how those experiences and your own relationship with the city, how it changed and impacted you as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would say that overall I had a a good uh, childhood and which I recognize I'm very privileged in. And I think I come to appreciate even more in my line of work. and uh, at the same time, you know, I guess every person has had their own set of challenges that can be different. Uh, and we can't compare them right, to, to each other. Like in my case, I have experienced, you know, bullying during my childhood years in the school. So, uh, so while home was a safe space, you know, school was a space where I would feel very anxious, you know, stepping mm-hmm. into, right, as a result. And uh, I think... Uh, back in uh, the 90s, right, uh, people didn't really take bullying uh, seriously. And I can even see that in some of my clients' stories, those who grew up here uh, within the 90s or 80s, right? And I learned from them, you know, that uh, definitely even the whole, even physical kinds of bullying were not taken as uh, seriously as they are right now in comparison. You know, definitely the country has made a lot of progress, right, in, in, in this area. But definitely there is, uh, as with any any country in the world, there's always room, you know, to, to improve. Uh, but I do appreciate that we've been having more conversations about uh, these issues than back in the day, in the past. Mm. Whereas before, it was like, oh, don't be too sensitive. Just put it in one ear, take it out the other. <sighs> yeah. You know, for the boys, <laughs> just man up, be strong, fight back, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things, right? So... Uh, so that has had an impact, but at the same time, I would say that uh, when I uh, entered um, high school, actually no, maybe not high school, maybe I was about 13, actually, I would say, I started to get closer to my spirituality. And uh, I think, um, you know, reading the Quran more on my own versus only relying on what I was being taught in my Islamic classes, 
it taught me to see uh, how the sacred expresses itself everywhere and within ourselves, mm. to see beauty everywhere and within ourselves. And uh, from there, that helped me step out of my victim mindset mm. and kind of try to, to be curious, oh, I wonder why do people act the way they do? Right. Uh, so when I when I had that mindset, it completely shifted uh, how I feel about myself, how I felt about other people, and even in turn how other people interacted with me. Mm. Interesting. Do you think that's the moment when you decided you wanted to become a therapist? So it was a kind of a mix of moments, and this was part of it. Mm. The other part was, you know, my father. He uh, you know, he, he, he's, uh, he's an engineer, you know, but he also is a very prolific reader. And mm. so I grew up with love books in the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, among the many topics he loved, loves to read on happens to be psychology. So I, I would sit and read them uh, on my own. Yeah. Uh, and he would even talk to us as though we are adults. Mm. Right. So, so I felt like that partly uh, helped to foster my curiosity about the subject. Um, and, uh, so that combined with, you know, the experience I just told you about, and then, you know, witnessing one of my cousins being born mm. and watching him grow up. Cause you know, I was, I was usually one of the younger people in the family, but then right. I see, oh, here's a, someone even younger than me. And I see him as a baby and I can watch him grow. And I would sometimes babysit him. That also made me curious about psychology, you know, as well. And initially I was more into the, research and and I wasn't considering mental health until mm-hmm. when I was in the states by my maybe you could say my second year university in the states I started to volunteer for a rape crisis hotline for two years and that made me fall in love with counseling and with therapy and what made me fall in love with them in particular uh, even though I was doing crisis work it's not the same as doing therapy work uh, but what I loved about it was this idea of empowerment, this idea of, um, you know, when someone has experienced something traumatic that, 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 uh, that had them feel powerless at that time, you know, how the therapy can help them reconnect to the power they have, you know, mm. inside of them. Uh, so when I say empowerment, I don't mean I'm the one giving them power because that's also a disempowering position but more how do we help the person reconnect to uh, the power within them, especially in the face of a situation that had them feel powerless and that uh, where someone more powerful uh, hurt them, you know, right. in, in that way. So, so that's what uh, inspired me. You know, that combined with when I started to learn more about uh, what's often called mental health disorders, I learned that many of them, you know, their their technically responses to abnormal situations uh, versus being in themselves abnormalities. You know, they, they can be normal responses to abnormal circumstances and situations. And in terms of your relationship with Dubai, the city, like I mentioned, you know, I've lived there myself for, for five years, but it's also a city that is renowned for being constantly in flux and changing and growing. Um, It has a very unique um, demographic situation whereby you have 
something like 90% of the population are foreigners, foreign born, um, less 10% and less who are local um, nationals, Emirati nationals. Um, at any given time, you know, if you give, if you leave more than six months between a visit, you're going to find a new building or a new shop or a new store. And so physic aesthetically, it's always changing. Things are being built, roads, bridges, um, canals. I mean, really, you know, we're not talking a little project. We're talking a really big, completely mind shifting um, infrastructure <clears throat> and, and set up. How for you as an as an Emirati does it feel to to be constantly witnessing this change? And how does it mm. impact your sense of belonging and identity, mm. if at all? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good question. Yeah. Um like on one hand I find myself proud of my country, you know, for the ways it has grown, especially, you know, in, in a short period of time and I think anyone who's grown up in the 90s or before has witnessed even more bigger change uh, compared to those born, you know, now, uh, a kind of thing. So on one hand, I do find myself appreciating how change has always been a part of the identity what makes Dubai, right? It has always been part of it and this uh, and uh, these intercultural interactions, uh, whether people decide to stay long term or they are transitional and just stay a bit and then leave, that has also been part of Dubai's uh, uh, character as well. Uh, and I, I do find myself feeling, you know, proud about these things. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, you know, Emiratis themselves are also proud of their culture. And I do appreciate that we can ha both have intercultural diversity while also uh, being connected to our own traditions and, and culture. So these are things that are positive and that I will stay proud of, right? And at the same time, you know, I, I do also believe uh, that that sometimes when there's constant changes, constant rapid urbanization, it can create challenges in having a sense of place. And uh, I've become more and more accepting of this, you know, over time. But I do notice that uh, when I go visit the States again, Boston in particular, which has not changed as rapidly or as much <laughs> yeah. in comparison, you know, so, so I have mixed feelings. I guess maybe to answer your, your question, I would say I have mixed feelings. There's a part of me as proud and that appreciates how far we've come. There's a part of me that wishes that we could do more to inculcate people's sense of place and connection with place. How much does that come up with with people mm. that you that you meet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say it comes up in different ways. Maybe not necessarily in the way I described it, but uh, one version that I kept hearing coming up is, um, especially with people who grew up moving schools a lot or moving countries a lot. Um, so they may almost mistrust getting too close to people. Because mm. they might feel, oh, I'm, when I'm going to say goodbye to them again, right? In another sense, some people may be afraid of losing their friendships and, uh, you know, with the moves. There are others where, on the contrary, this may have given them a positive uh, quality, not necessarily negative, you know, where mm. 
maybe that experience of constantly moving and shifting and not feeling that that rootedness didn't quite matter to them as much but it may have given them the skill of being able to quickly make friends and connect wherever they mm-hmm. happen to find themselves in right so so i don't want to assume that's always negative it really depends on the person but definitely this theme does come up yeah i mean but but as you said it's it's not all about the negative i think there's a duality to almost everything in life and as you mentioned yourself in answer to the question about your sense um of belonging to buy you know there's a lot of pride mixed in with um also a little bit of confusion or nostalgia and um the two are probably very interwoven perhaps even a difficulty with with difficulty in the sense of difficulty recognizing that you have these two aspects of it but i suppose to ask it bluntly do you feel a sense of belonging in dubai today hmm i would say my idea of what makes sense of belonging has shifted over the years mm. and i definitely thank my late mentor you know for that you know i think many of us when we're younger right we assume to belong means we have to fit in yeah. and uh, right and i think yeah. unfortunately uh, sometimes it also gets encouraged in our culture where we care a lot about what other people think about us how they see us what we yes. call our sum'a right our yeah. reputation and unfortunately mm-hmm. it does have consequences especially as women right uh, so So there is that systemic aspect, a cultural aspect there too, mm. that can have people assume that to belong must mean to fit in, you know, mm. to please others, right? So, yes. so that has been a big part of how I initially defined belonging without realizing that was how I was defining it, right? Until my my mentor, my past mentor, pointed that out to me, and then he asked me, you know, if belonging was not about fitting in for you, what would it be about instead? Right. So that helped me reflect, you know, and um, and I think as of today, but who knows, this might change after we finish recording this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but as of today, I would say for me, belonging means, you know, where can I, two things actually, you know, where can I experience a sense of wonder, whether mm-hmm. it's in the people I'm with, whether it's in the... Uh, the nature when i say nature i don't mean i have to go to a isolated place i can experience nature in the city you know mm-hmm. in the weeds that grow on the cracks and the birds that pass by you know so can i experience a sense of wonder in this place and second do i feel like i have something to contribute and definitely i can say after having been back here <laughs> for yeah. some time now that yes i do have a lot to offer i i love that definition of belonging that i think that's really these are very helpful uh signposts actually to uh to to look at and questions to ask oneself when they're feeling um out of place is actually do you have these elements and i know they may expand and differ slightly from person to person but i do really like that what you're saying particularly the aspect of actually both but i was going to say particularly the aspect of do i have something to contribute um but i think equally is equally important to be able to have a sense of wonder about the place that you are in that you're still there's a certain exploration and discovery but it's a, it's also i think a two-way 
street. So you are taking something from this place and sort of absorbing it, but then you're also giving back to it. So mm. it's kind of like ultimately belonging is a sort of giving and receiving mm-hmm. cycle, yes. I would say. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like, right? Yeah, I didn't think of it in that lens, but but no, you're right. It's it's exactly it. Like I, I do recognize maybe for some people they may have different metrics for mm-hmm. what belonging mean for them and that's equally valid. Like for some people that say where they belong is where they feel free, you know, where they mm-hmm. feel freedom. Mm-hmm. Right. To be as they are and who they are, and that's that's a valid thing. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. I suppose that also makes sense. And I think though that comes that's perhaps an additional perspective that those who have been unfortunate enough to 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 be very repressed or not able to be themselves would would put would rank that as 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 high up i think for for me um perhaps i take that as a like a, an assumption that that's like a requisite <laughs> you know it's a very necessary yeah. part but you know to recognize that that isn't the case for everyone exactly. and and in terms of what you are contributing um it is massive in my in my opinion but also i'm sure in many others the the practice uh, that you work at the writing that you do but ultimately your work in mental health in uh, the uae i'm sure is of a huge welcome to to the population and i would like to know from you if you could give a sort of snapshot of where you see um mental health awareness uh, and services in the UAE or around the world is increasingly an important one and one um that is being discussed more in mainstream media among uh families and friends but it is on a you know very to varying degrees you know i'm speaking about this from someone who's based in london england and um so yes there's a lot of discussion and talk about it but but even so we're, we're still what i would call in the early days of just sort of lifting the lid off of this very important topic and starting to have these conversations mm-hmm. and i do also know that there there is to a certain extent that in the middle east but most likely not quite as ad- advanced um and and an advanced and open discussion i mean as as in some parts of the world So where do you see it today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely I've seen it come a long way. Like I remember when I first wanted to study psychology, right? How uh how people would respond to me, you know, saying mm. that versus today, right? And um and also there at the time there were no schools offering a graduate degree. in uh, counseling or clinical psychology but now we have more options compared to back in those days and also there were barely many cl- private clinics like maybe a handful a small handful uh and uh, we had we, we we had maybe a couple of inpatient units um but but definitely you know it was nowhere where it is now in comparison now uh at least in dubai i can't speak for the other emirates but at least in dubai we've had a lot more options when it comes to private clinics uh, popping up all over the city um we still have a long way to go when it comes to having more clinics available and accessible in the other emirates i would say right. 
you know Abu Dhabi is, is I think getting better you know but I'd say the other Emirates definitely I'd, I'd say there needs to be more when it comes to access um, and when it comes to also inpatient units we are not having enough beds uh, and I think we still need to do more to expand access uh, to those you know as, as well and improving uh, the quality of their services they definitely improved over the years you know but I still think we have work to do in that department. I would also say that uh, over time, we've had more laws change mm-hmm. when it comes to crisis and suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. You know, before, um, attempting suicide was seen as a criminal as- offense in the UAE. They changed the law as now we have recognized that, you know, people don't just wake up one day wanting to kill themselves like that, you know, like that they're, they're usually under immense suffering, whether internal or external, that has them come to the point where they feel that life is no longer worthwhile uh, for yeah. them. And to try and punish that will actually worsen the situation. So definitely there's been a growing recognition that you know these people need help. Mm-hmm. And also I think to both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, we have now uh, addiction rehabilitation centers, which mm-hmm. before we did not have. So now there's also a growing understanding that oh, these people are not criminals. They are people who need help and we yeah. need to support them and we need to support their families. And I love that the addiction center here in Dubai, they do a lot of work with families and not just individuals, which I think is, is wonderful. So we definitely come a long way there. But again, we need to have more centers to have to, to for, so that way it can be more accessible for more people in the country. And... Uh, while some insurance companies are covering mental health services in the private sector, unfortunately, there are not enough of them that do so. And even though they do cover, they cover a limited amount unless you are extremely lucky and you know work in a corporate company that can afford to give you a good <laughs> quality you know, health insurance that can cover it in an unlimited way. But that's not most people uh, in the country. So many people, they feel that the private sector is very expensive, uh, you know, partly because we have high overhead fees to deal mm-hmm. with. You know, I mean, already our training was very expensive and there are still providers out there who are having student debt yeah. to pay off. And then licensing, we have to pay for that. And not just the licensing itself, we have to renew it every year. Right, wow. and then part of renewing it also, we have to take extra trainings as continuing education to update our knowledge because the field keeps changing. So that also costs money, and then the price of rent for the offices have shot up around the world, not just here in the UAE, but all over the world. The prices have gone up, and so that 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 makes that creates a big overhead cost for people. On top of that, you have to also pay for the administrative fees, and you know. You have to pay up reception staff, you have to pay up different people, right? So, but unfortunately, all of that falls on the price of the therapy that the client is paying uh, for, unfortunately. And the therapist ends up making less uh, from that, right? So, at least in Dubai, I cannot speak for other Emirates, I can't speak for the rest of the region. But in the private sector, clinicians can make anywhere from uh, 30% of the commission from what the person pays to, if they're very, very lucky, 60%, right? But on average, most people are making 50, right? So half. So basically what the client pays, 
half goes to overhead, half goes to the uh, clinician. But if they're less lucky, the clinician only gets 30% and the rest 70% goes <laughs> up to Gosh. the overhead fees, right? So, so unfortunately, wow. I think we, we need to do more work to yeah. a, make our services more accessible to more people and at the same time, still make sure that providers earn a sustainable enough income yeah no absolutely my gosh i mean you really lifted the lid there on what the costs involved with actually providing the services and i think it's really important to know that because you're absolutely right to say that therapy is prohibitively expensive for many people and um yeah and sorry to interrupt but also uh, the government sector right you know even though it's much more affordable compared to the private sector However, uh, many, especially of the of the Emiratis, prefer not to go for mental services in the government sector because they're worried about their file becoming linked with the rest of their medical records. Yes. And they're concerned about privacy, given yeah. that it's a small community, people mm-hmm. know each other, whereas in the private, you know, it's easy, it's more easy to separate. Uh, but still, people have those concerns about notes. How private are they really? Who has access to them? Uh, especially if people come from large families that are well connected, they're concerned. You know, what if someone who is extended family sees this? So I guess one challenge is how do we both protect the person's privacy and at the same time ensure that the providers are doing the work they're doing, that uh, the licensing bodies require us. You know, like things yeah. like keeping notes up to date, making sure we're licensed, making sure our notes are secure. Because mm-hmm. after all, in any country you go we have licensing bodies who come and they audit and they check, you know, oh, is your clinic private? Is it clean? Is it safe? Are you not secure? Did you update this person's notes? Right. You know, so those things that there will be a problem wherever you go, not just Mm -hmm. here in the UAE, you know, but at the same time, how do we ensure uh, people feel safe with that reality, you know, in mind? Are your clients predominantly uh, locals or expats? Actually, it makes me interestingly. When I started my first job, I had uh, more expats than locals. Uh, and then when I moved to this job, I noticed I started having more clients who are uh, locals, most of whom hear about me through word of mouth or they find me through Instagram. Mm. Um, and uh, but I do get people uh, also expats, uh, mostly from South Asian mm-hmm. uh, background. Uh, but I do get from other countries as well. And I think part of what made that happen was because I find that, um, you know, since there aren't many Emiratis in the mental health field, right, I find that many employers, uh, maybe they're well-intentioned, right, but they may assume that, um, oh, she's uh, Emirati, she's Muslim, then, you know, she'd be be better fit for other Emiratis, other Muslims Mm -hmm. kind of thing, versus, well, I may have other expertise to offer aside from my cultural background (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah that's not the only thing I have to offer but sometimes it's not necessarily their fault right it can also be that particular clients may happen to seek me out yeah more than others and may feel Mm -hmm. oh we want someone who shares our culture who gets things that I don't have to sit down and educate and explain (laughs) yep going back to that point but on the flip side you did mention um you know 
the UAE and, and Dubai, small country, small population, small city, as yeah. as big as it is on the world stage, it's still ultimately a, a small place. <laughs> and is. with a small local population comes um, the intimacy that yeah. uh, people, you know, pretty much everybody knows everybody. Do you find that is a hindrance um, when it comes to the local um, population either coming to see you and or just seeking out help in general? Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I find that I get very opposite reactions to this. On one side, there might be people who, when they find out I am local, like, mm, no, right? And then there's other people, no, that's, they specifically sought me out for that reason, mm. right, specifically. And But for me personally, if I see someone who has a family name where I feel, oh, they might know my family very, very well, and it's mm-hmm. very likely that I'm going to be seeing them often, then right. I prefer to refer out. <laughs> you yeah. know? But I do, I do let them know that, that you know, uh, all that. But if there's someone where, okay, maybe my, fam- my family might know their family, but I personally don't see them that often. My parents don't see them that often. You know, so there's not really any conflict of interest. I still bring it up that, that there's that, but mm-hmm. I ask them for their comfort level. Would you feel comfortable proceeding? Are there any particular recurring themes that arrive at your at your practice? I mean, of course, keeping you know the utmost confidentiality and without necessarily getting too much into specifics. But I'm yeah intrigued to know within this small cohort and community that you see you know are there things that come up more often Mm. than not that you're like "Mm, yeah maybe this is a societal issue overall Um, yeah yeah you know one is definitely navigating workplace culture especially mm. if it's a toxic office culture that's a big one i keep getting regardless of the person's cultural background i find uh and it can come in different versions right but but that's very common theme also um i would say relationship problems whether it's Mm -hmm. uh, platonic or romantic and i think Mm -hmm. if we're adding a uh, romantic element sometimes it can be that combined with navigating uh, maybe conservative uh, uh, family expectations around that so that can be a common thing intergenerational stuff especially if i'm working with not only emiratis but also uh expats who mm. maybe their parents grew up less privileged but yeah. they may have grown up with much more privilege in comparison uh so there can be you know intergenerational clashes right around that that i get um also maybe another theme um a trauma is one as well and uh, i think for me like i in a way, it's not surprising, but I guess when I started off, I didn't expect to hear this amount of mm. trauma. Like I was thinking, oh, maybe all this trauma training I had in the U.S. will not be relevant here. But apparently, no, it turned out to actually be more than relevant over here, particularly if I'm working with expats who came from uh, regions that are currently, unfortunately, labeled as conflict mm-hmm. zones, yeah. right? Uh, so... So that becomes, you know, very important to have that trauma-informed uh, lens, right, in mind when I work with these people. But even Emiratis who grew up here all their life and all that, you know, definitely like, like not, like, uh, not like contrary to popular belief, 
not all of them lived privileged lives, contrary to popular belief. And I think we do need to have more of these uh, conversations. Unfortunately, I find, even though I am glad that we're talking more about mental health, I don't feel like we're talking about trauma mm. enough, especially right. when it comes to um, uh, intimate partner abuse or family abuse. Yeah. Uh, particularly sexual violence. I think it's barely if ever spoken about. So not surprisingly, when people come to me, they feel very alone in their experience. And more often than not, I'm the first living soul they ever said it to. Wow. That's also a big responsibility, I suppose. Does it feel yeah. like it? Yeah. yeah, definitely. It does. You do uh, write quite a bit. Um, you're a columnist and um, you've also contributed to other publications. Have you ever written about this topic specifically? Um, intimate violence, relationship violence, sexual violence? Not quite yet. It's definitely in my radar. I have kind of mentioned it indirectly in other articles. Yeah. But uh, I'm trying to find a way to talk about these topics uh, in a way that's also culturally sensitive. Yeah. Here, right. So, but it's definitely something that it is within, you know, my plan, you know, hopefully to uh, write about these these uh, topics more. I mean, it just goes to show if, if you as a professional with a wealth of experience behind you and such awareness and insight, um, and confidence in your field is still tiptoeing around the right way to package this yeah. very important topic. How must it be for people who don't have all of this um, medical training, awareness and, and background? Uh, it is absolutely a huge topic. And I think, goodness help everybody once finally the lid is lifted off of it because it's there, and yeah, I think people know. We we know that that this is a big problem, um, but as you rightfully pointed out, it just isn't being um, spotlighted enough or addressed enough for for various reasons that are um, very tied into culture and shame and yes. um, the dynamics um, between right. men and women. And yeah. I think, and I think it's extra complicated here in this culture because see in the West, so often people talk about abuse, They're like, Oh, you can just leave your abuser. You can just leave the abusive situation. But here, you know, it's not always possible for mm -hmm. everybody to do that. And especially when you're dealing with the abuse at a family level, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes difficult when, um, you know, the family's concerned about their reputation, you know, their, uh, it's a collectivistic culture. So this idea of cutting out relationships, you know, it's a difficult one, you know, for people. So then people are kind of stuck trying to figure out how do I navigate any interactions I happen to have with a family member who happened to be someone who abused me and hurt me and didn't get called out for. That's not the case with everybody. Like I've definitely heard stories where, Families are much more supportive of the person mm -hmm. who was hurt, which I'm glad that there are some who that have is. a level of awareness and did stand in solidarity with the person. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. Yeah. And I'd just like to you know, add in, I know that you said in, in, the, in the West, there's more of this idea of you can just leave your abuser. But even here now, there is definitely a, a change in that mindset of, 
understanding that it even if the option is technically available to you when you are in that dynamic yes. and there is a fundamental power imbalance um that it is not as straightforward as just That's open true, the door yes. and walk out um, <laughs> of course yeah where, so yeah just yeah. but i do understand yeah, yeah. what you mean i think in 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 certain parts of the world it's not only that psychologically it's mm. not possible but that actually exactly. practically speaking in places in countries where you have literally families living together in one yes. house or in one apartment block it is it isn't actually technically straightforward and exactly. the families are so enmeshed together and and not only like families within the family but then families among, you know sort of like this yeah. network and then that makes it even more complicated exactly. but i but yeah. i do understand your your point yeah yeah and of course i don't want to minimize what people in the west do experience because i've definitely worked with them and yes like like and actually statistically speaking at least in the states that uh, the point that the person decides to leave the abuser is when they are at highest risk for their life that's when many people get killed at right. worst or even abused even worse right if they get found right by by the abuser trying to leave so definitely even there uh, there is a high risk but yes i did want to add that at a cultural level systemic level i guess we now have uh, some more services available which is mm-hmm. good compared to before there was barely anything whereas now there are more laws around this there mm-hmm. are more services around this but again it's not enough you know yeah. like i find that you know in dubai we have one uh, domestic violence shelter uh, but i think we do need to have more yeah uh, of of these services so it's accessible to more people yeah 100% speaking of services um you are a consultant for the takallum app which is an Arabic mental health app. And it's actually been great as I've entered this sort of space to see how many new um, conversations, services, uh, account, like online accounts there are in Arabic about, you know, sort of dealing with mental health and which I'm really happy to see and also feel like a sense of pride, but just like grateful because it's in the actual local language and that makes it much more accessible. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about about Tekellum and what your role uh, with them is? Yeah, yeah. So Tekellum is actually won by two Arab women who are based here in UAE. So it is a UAE-based mental health app. And this is one of the other things I forgot to mention that I'm proud of about the country when it comes to where we are at in mental health is that now, especially with more support for startups and more encouragement for startups, particularly women founders, mm-hmm. I find that we've had this influx of mental health startups, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, but like Tekellem offers um, online uh, individual therapy services uh, at different price points. So it's meant to be fitting the financial needs of different people. So I like that, that that these apps have the potential right, to help address some of the uh, accessibility barriers that people have to going to uh, private clinics here in, in the UAE. Yeah. Uh, the only issue is not everybody has access to a private home with consistently mm. good internet connection. Uh, especially if you're living with an intergenerational household, as you can imagine, some people don't necessarily feel comfortable 
having an online therapy session. Yeah. But others may have that luxury to or privilege, right, to have a private space where they can do just that. And that's wonderful, right? Not everybody does. Uh, but still a step in the right direction. And I'm glad that we have this as another option for people who maybe they feel uncomfortable even being seen in the waiting room. So some yeah. people that that can be a cultural barrier is to even be seen in the waiting room. Uh, or to even have their name linked in a file, even if nobody can see the contents of the notes and it's private unless they get permission. But still, you know, like uh, you're signing a consent document, you're giving your ID, your name mm-hmm. is still linked to the fact that you're in the clinic and you're seeing this therapist. And that's a very valid concern people have about privacy. Whereas online, again, online, anything online is never perfect with privacy, but it's definitely better than the system. Yeah. You know, for sure. And most of these uh, online apps, they don't necessarily have a not taking system in them. That's the therapist's responsibility mm. uh, to figure out if their license requires them to update notes. Mm. But that that gives clients, you know, extra security. You know, knowing that, okay, I just sign in, I make an account, I book with a therapist, and that's it. You know, kind of thing. Um, plus, it gives access to more global therapists. Aside from therapy, Tekellem also is offering journaling capacities in the app and more tracking. And they have videos, educational videos and webinars that they're hosting for um, corporate workplace wellness as well. Now they're expanding into university student wellness as well. Uh, And I'm helping them with designing programs uh, Mm. for these. Uh, So they do special packages for employees, employers, and uh, universities. Uh, and their their hope is that that way, instead of having the end user being the one to pay, right, it would be maybe, for example, through the employer, right, yeah. who pays the package that helps reach, you know, more people. Wow, it sounds amazing. Such a great initiative and, and, and application. Do you see the future of therapy as going online and I know you've mentioned some of the benefits to that accessibility, um, mm. cost, but do you see any drawbacks, any yeah. limitations? Yeah, I mean, one limitation, as I mentioned earlier, is that not everybody has access to a private space yep. or consistently good internet connection to do online therapy. And other limitations are that, um, uh, you know, luckily, Tekellem is HIPAA compliant, right? so we have that, but not every online app is or is able to do that. Uh, and even with HIPAA compliance, right, there are certain holes in it when it comes to anything uh, online, unfortunately. So I still think that we have a long way to go before we can ensure a truly 100% secure you know, system uh, for people. But it's definitely better than nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's for sure. And um, uh, I would say definitely we need to expand more language capacities. I mean, luckily to kind mm. them has Arabic English in place, which is awesome. And we do have therapists who speak Arabic. And we have other therapists who speak other languages, like Gujarati, Hindi, among yeah. many others. Okay. Uh, but it would be nice if we could have, you know, more of the content and website be in these other languages, yeah. even the, especially in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. You know, at least in UAE, about 50% of the population is South Asian, Southeast Asian. So it'd be good to have their languages also more represented. Uh, but definitely we're in a positive, taking a positive step toward yeah. uh, such accessibility. 
Wonderful. It is great to know that there is wider accessibility for a service that is much needed. Um, the last thing I want to touch on uh, with you is perhaps going a bit more uh, personal or marrying the personal and the professional. And I mentioned, obviously, that you do a lot of writing and I came across your blog um, where you were writing your Ramadan reflections and they were very, um, very thoughtful, very moving um, writing, quite, you know, a lot of depth and um, personal reflections in that and um and I also know that you write poetry I haven't uh sadly gone had the chance yet to read it but I know that you've been published in several places and I wanted to ask you about that process and what it means to you personally and I sort of wondered as well if the poetry aspect of it um you know if there, if there was any sort of tie-in culturally because um the UAE and the Gulf region is quite known for for uh, being a, a poetic uh, culture. That's their primary source of creative expression has always been through poetry. Um, and I, I and I was curious about how you got to poetry and how what it means for you in terms of processing. Yeah, yeah. So um, technically, I started to write and do creative writing in general since I was nine years old. Uh, but poetry in particular, I didn't take it seriously until I was 14 mm -hmm. onwards. Uh, but what got me into writing was, I'd say, reading. Yeah. And, uh, and I think especially reading Aesop's fables that was gifted to me by a family friend. And then later, Harry Potter. <laughs> most <laughs> yeah. 90s kids got into, you know, my age was matching Harry's age, each with each yeah. book really is. <laughs> so it was wonderful. So, so I think just, just appreciating words and how words come together, how writers um, can make you even visualize things, mm. right? With just simple words on a page. Uh, like I think that always uh, fascinated me. On top of it, actually, you know, speaking of culture, you know, my um, maternal grandmother, she writes poetry in Arabic, actually, but she's never published them. Mm. And she writes them in very random places, like whether it's a random notebook paper yeah. there on a, on a receipt, a piece of receipt, she'll yeah. write something. <laughs> on mm -hmm. a tissue box, she'll write something. She's been one influence. And also... My father's side, also my uh, my grandfather, uh, before he passed away, he, he also wrote uh, poetry mm -hmm. as well, but again, never published. But it yeah. just seems that in both sides of my family, right, uh, people who have had some kind of relationship with the written word and love for the written word. Uh, but for me, I turned to reading and writing because, you know, I was an awkward child who was bullied, right? So I felt that books kept me company. Yeah, and uh, and generally, I find that I express myself better when I write versus mm -hmm. when I talk, and people get puzzled by that. But I explain that you know when you talk, you're using a very different part of your brain than when you're writing. Yeah, and plus, uh, as a more introverted person, let's say writing um, helps me slow down and process my thoughts better than talking. Where I have to say them right then and there, and I cannot edit what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Very good point. Um, there is a, yeah, I mean, I do both. And so I understand exactly what you mean about the difference in, in writing. You are by virtue of the process kind of forced to reflect and select 
your words, but also um, there's a certain depth that you access with writing mm. that you don't quite with speaking, even though with speaking I find that what I get is a maybe a more instantaneous connection, but it's not always quite as deep, the levels of where I'm going. Whereas when I think about when I write, I'm I'm sort of almost always like going one layer on like with each paragraph, it's like mm. and another layer below and another layer below. Yeah. yeah. But for, for for me also personally, when it's come to poetry, I'm I'm I haven't published, but I like you started writing when I was really young, and so I've always sort of since nine had like my sort of poetry and collections and and um, you know I've start I started performing in in places it's just spoken word a few years ago but I'm still kind of a little bit shy about it I'm getting slowly less so but I think it's also partly because it's it's so personal and deep <laughs> what I write about that I feel a little bit exposed when I would would share it but then I also get such a sense of relief when I'm going through a certain thing and then I write this poem and that transference from these deep emotions that I may not fully understand or these thoughts that are just sort of swirling to then having a process by which I write them and this certain flow on page has such a huge impact, such a huge impact on me. Do you find that's the same for you? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, I find that I might discover things or rediscover things that maybe it would be harder to do if I were talking out loud. And um, I just love that, uh, I think the best uh, writing for me is when I enter this flow state and uh, and just things come up, you know, naturally. Maybe I edit later, but it's just really fun when that happens or in the moment. Like, I feel like I can play with words and images more than I'm able to with regular writing. Uh, and I like that I can express uh, ideas in uh, less words compared to, you know, when, when I write regularly. Yeah. So when are we going to be able to read some of your poetry? I saw <laughs> on your link tree that it said coming soon. <laughs> yes, yes. There's already a few posted on my Instagram page itself, but I was hoping okay. to organize them better in Linktree and then I just didn't get around that. <laughs> I'd love to read them and uh, and see how you use your words in yeah. this way. Um, and uh, sometimes but... I find that too, that uh, at times when I have clients who like to write, that creates another uh, interesting area we can incorporate into therapy uh. itself. I think yes, what I like yes. about writing is the space that it creates between me and the situation, the thoughts, the feelings. And mm. within that space is where where there's some relief and understanding. I think yes, that's exactly. what I find. Yep. Yeah. Rima, it has been such a pleasure, really, really, really great, wonderful pleasure to speak with you, um, to hear all of your insights and your experience, the work that you do is incredible and so valuable in a region that is in, um, in great need for minds and, and hearts like yours. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you very much for giving your um, very valuable time to Third Culture Therapy Podcast. I really appreciate it.
No, thank you so much for this conversation. I look forward to listening to the episode and also to all your other episodes, you know, on, on yeah. the podcast. I really in, enjoy the conversations you, ha you have there. Wonderful. Thanks, Rima. I wish you a wonderful day and uh, we'll be in touch soon. You too, Leila. Take care. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Check out the show notes for more details about my wonderful guests, including where you can find them on social media. If you enjoyed listening to this, please do spread the good word, share with friends, family, cousins and colleagues, and please, please, please like and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast. Your support is crucial for the show's success and a couple of clicks from you will mean the world to me. Go to my website, leilamagraby.com and follow me on Instagram and Twitter for more news on future episodes.